What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Hi, everybody. This is Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. And we have a very special guest today. Uh, she's kind of a big deal, you guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to put that out there right at the, the start. She's kind of a big deal. And so I'm very flattered that you made time in your day um, to come and sit and talk with me. I am excited about the conversation we're going to have. I think that your perspective is probably one that is not... Um, said enough because there are so many educators in San Antonio alone and you are really working across the state of Texas Mm -hmm. and so you know 85,000 people to one (laughs) it's kind of not fair so I'm very excited that you're here and that you get to tell your story so I'm gonna let you introduce yourself uh, well, my name is Kate Rogers, and I'm actually with the Charles Butt Foundation. Been there for a few years, spent most of my career here in San Antonio at HEB, but I've been working in the education space for about 20 years. Uh, started that at HEB by creating the HEB Excellence in Education Awards to honor outstanding educators. Created Which our read. So amazing. It is. You know, I, it's, it's kind of become. So amazing. People call it the Academy Awards I, of Teaching in Texas. And it's just. You know, when we first started the program, ironically, you know, it's 18 years ago. And at that time, the state was facing a major teaching shortage. Uh, but the reality was, when you dug into the numbers, it wasn't that we had a lack of certified teachers. We had a lack of certified teachers who actually wanted to remain in the classroom. Right. And the sad thing, in my view, is that we're still in the same situation today, if not worse. Yeah. You know, um, I think we have fewer students than ever before in Texas history and possibly even in U.S. history uh, who, at the college level, actually want to pursue a career in teaching, Yeah. which is very troubling. It is. It is. It is. And it is one of the reasons that we decided to start San Antonio Leaders and Teachers to elevate Mm -hmm. the profession in San Antonio because there were way too many times in my own professional experience that I would encounter people who I didn't know who asked me what I did. And the second I said that I was a teacher or that I was a school principal, it was almost like they felt sorry for me Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. or they thought that maybe it wasn't that challenging of a job even though they were never so obvious in their perception it I could pick up on veiled comments you know yeah. like oh it oh you must have so much fun playing with kids all day as though that's what we do yeah um so I really over my educational career started feeling like this is not fair that we have the most technical job that a person could have. And the vast majority of us are really very highly educated. Yeah. Um, and we're trained in the craft of brain work. Yes. Like real brain work. Yes. And so this season, um, we had some some brainstorming sessions, some creative sessions about like, what's this season going to be about? Um, and we really were thinking it's miseducation. So we're here to challenge misconceptions that people might have that might exist and I say might in air quotes because I actually feel like these really do exist even though I'm making a generalization I just think this really is what people sometimes think about teaching and leading and in education Um, and so comments like well it's not like it's brain surgery well I think the deep professionalization of teaching in this country, I think even dates back to, you know, when women right after World War II started to enter the workforce in a different way. That, you know, back in the day, the best and brightest women in our country 
really only had a couple of career options, and mm-hmm. that was to be a teacher or a nurse. And when that changed, while it was, hey, I'm real glad it changed, um, <laughs> and it's been a good thing societally. Yes. I mean, no one would argue against that, I don't think. Um, but what happened was then all those people left the classroom. And, you know, I think that we've been debating since the early 80s when A Nation at Risk came out, right, mm-hmm. under the Reagan administration. We've been debating about our education system and how to improve it. We're not getting the outcomes we'd like to see. And we've been trying different things. But the research is pretty clear in terms of what really matters if you really want students to, to perform to a higher level in the classroom, there's really only two things. It's the teacher who's standing in the front of the room mm-hmm. and her preparation, her energy, her compassion, her ability to connect with those kids in a meaningful way and bring the content to life for each and every one of them and the principal. Absolutely. Because people like yourself won't stay in the profession if you're working for somebody who you don't want to work for. Oh, that's, a, and uh, you know, there was a video that I watched a lady named Rita Pearson. She did a TED talk uh-huh. and she said she had a colleague she was teaching, she was teaching with. And the colleague said, look, I don't, I, I don't get paid to like these kids. I get paid to teach these kids. That's my job. And Rita turned around and told her, you are going to have a very arduous year yeah. because kids don't learn from someone they don't like. No. And I think that's true across the board. No matter how young you are or how old you are, you you don't want to be around people that you don't like. So I have a 14-year-old son, and let me tell you how much <laughs> he responds to teachers who he who, thinks, who A, he doesn't like, but also who he thinks don't like him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear it from, we. I have a 14-year-old too. And, you know, it's occasionally that the boys will come home and say, like, I can tell that my teacher didn't want to be here today or that whatever. So kids are very intuitive. They're going to know. Oh, yeah. And adults are too. Adults want to work with somebody that they really like. So I think that relation piece, relationship piece is critical to the work that we do. And that is not easy. No. That's what makes the job so technically challenging. If it were just about skills, that would be one thing. But you're also building relationships with your colleagues, with your administrators, yes. with your students. And so the craft of teaching is just very deep. It's a, a very deep, hard work. Well, I've often thought of it, you know, more like a practice, more like the medical field. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, if you kind of compare it in that way, there's a couple of potential flaws in our system. One is the idea that when you come out with a four-year degree in teaching or in education, Um, you're actually ready to teach versus, (laughs) you know, in a lot of other countries, when you, when you come out of college, you're not a fully qualified teacher, you know, you're going to spend at least one year Mm -hmm. studying under a master or mentor teacher who's going to really help you hone your craft Mm -hmm. before they turn you loose on a classroom of kids because the stakes are so high. Right. Uh, So I really are. Yeah, I I think that's an issue. I read that undoing the work of one teacher takes up to three years Mm -hmm. you know if one teacher does it wrong that for that cohort of kids they're going to have to have the next three years playing catch-up well and have outstanding educators for and have yes exactly because I think you know ultimately I think we think about what's what what is student progress? What's the mission of school in a lot of different ways? But the way I think about it ultimately is that what you what you really want is for each student to start the school year and wherever they are to make at least one year mm-hmm. of learning gains or growth over the course of the school year. Right. Right. And we can measure that. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about it in that way, if you have a year or two years back to back where you're not seeing that growth right. as an individual student, it really it's really hurt, it, hurts the kids. It becomes a near impossible task because then you're you're looking at, okay, we have ten months of school primarily. Yes. Ten months of school. Hundred and eighty seven days. And in those hundred and eighty seven days, Everybody knows that we need to actually push the student through an entire year's worth of growth. Mm-hmm. So you're already condensing 12 months of growth into a 10-month period. Yeah. And that's if that student is 
there every day. They have perfect attendance, right? Then you have 187 days of instruction. But if they're absent in the, at all, that time is condensed even more. Yeah. So if they're not on level when they get to you, if they're already two years behind, if you have a fifth grader who's reading at a third grade reading level and you still have the same number of days, the 187 days if they're there every day, yeah. you've now got a gap that is a 36-month gap that you're trying to close in 187 days. Yeah, I think um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, our organization and Raise Your Hand Texas have always been such big proponents of early childhood education and quality pre-K, because we know that kids who come from at-risk or underprivileged environments when they show up at school, they're frequently already mm-hmm. behind. So they're already playing catch up. They may show up on the first day of kindergarten with one third of the vocabulary right. as, of their more affluent peers. Right. right. So, and we know it's less costly to intervene in those early years to try to do mm-hmm. that catch up. By the time we get to middle school or high school, it's wildly expensive it really to try is. to catch up a student well because then you're dealing with psyche too right then yes. you're dealing with the self-concept that i can't do this i'm not good at this right i don't i'm not good at math yes i'm just not good at it which is like one of my i just wish we would strike that from our vocabulary yes you know, it was my observation like last year we spent a ton of time doing some international travel looking at other systems partially to look at where my future cohorts of the Holsworth Center, which is focused on leadership Mm -hmm. within the education sector, quite specifically, where they might go, but also just to broaden our own knowledge base. And I will say, you can criticize, I mean, no system is perfect. Of course. None. Well, no person is. So how could a system? Yeah. And you can't, you can't pick up a system and say, well, we're just going to replicate that just like it is in the United States, because Mm -hmm. the political context is quite different, cultural, you know, so that's naive. However, um, like in most of the Asian countries, I will say, you know, even in the early grades, and particularly by the time students get to fifth grade or middle school, the level of mathematics proficiency is just staggering. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes you question, you know, how... How, what are we doing and how are we doing in terms of creating students who are really fluent in right. the language of mathematics? Yes. Which is, if you look at the jobs of the future, almost all of them are re- going to require math. Right. I completely agree. And I find it fascinating that it goes back to the, the idea that I'm just not good at it. I don't. Yes. And especially don't, for girls. Yes. I So I taught fifth grade for seven years and I recognized pretty quickly that my girls were outperformed in math and science by the boys in the classroom and the boys were significantly outperformed by the girls in reading and writing. Mm-hmm. And so I had this idea when I was teaching. There were three of us on our grade level. One of us was a bilingual teacher um, One of us, and the other two were self-contained generalists right so we decided to test a theory and see what would happen if for those content areas we separated girls and boys so we decided and it was actually I talked to my friend Nicole into this she Mm -hmm. really was like Jen I don't think this is what I want to do I don't we had way more boys than we had girls across the grade level Um, and so she was like that's putting like all these rambunctious boys in one classroom you know my logic then was but Nicole if we don't do it then the boys won't say anything during reading they're never the ones that are volunteering to ask to answer questions Mm. and even when I call on them when I do cold calling and I say okay Christian what is blah 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 Christian would make a joke out of the answer yeah every time Every single time Christian made a joke out of whatever I was asking him to answer. And so in science, if I asked a girl a question, she would look at me, smile, look at her friends, smile some more, shrug her shoulders, and that was the end. And then and then inevitably we would either move on or she would say, I don't know. And then I would say, well, you need to – let's – ask a friend and so I thought what might happen if we just 
take all of the girls out of the room for reading and take all of the boys out of the room for science, teach the exact same lesson, who's left to do the answering? Yeah. Like it's got to be them, right? But I feel like there's these mindsets and and sort of stereotypes that are worked into way more of our life than just school. Yeah, and you know, I think bias exists everywhere and you know, there's been lots of research studies that show on those subjects, for example, that teachers sometimes are more likely to call on boys more frequently. Um in certain areas and so it's that could be true to me it's um Uh really asking ourselves tough reflective questions about how are my Mm -hmm. own personal biases that is very true showing up you're reminding me that at that time I was actually pursuing my national board certification Mm -hmm. and so I was videotaping myself teaching which is the worst thing you could do. Well, it's terrible oh, it's to videotape so terrible. yourself doing it's anything. It's terrible. Then it, you like, know, I don't look like that. No. I don't sound like, like that. Why did I ever buy those <laughs> pants? <laughs> what was I thinking? And, and I, why didn't you, someone wh- tell me? Yes, like, where are my friends? <laughs> I thought I had friends. <laughs> but I also, I saw too that I had some really weird idiosyncrasies when I was teaching. I tended to look to the right side of the room all of the time. Mm. So anyone that was in the left side of my peripheral vision, I just, they could have been doing whatever they wanted to be doing. And I didn't, it's not like I wasn't paying attention. I just, in the moment, I didn't ha- I wasn't aware that I was teaching to the right side of the room. So those were the things that through that process of national board certification, I had other peers watching me teach. Yeah. And I was watching me teach. And I could see like, wow, I really only called on boys or I really only called on this side of the room or I tend to call on the person that I know is going to give me the right answer every time. Why do I do that? You know, why do I only call on? Well, in my analysis, I called on the people that I knew would give me the right answer because I was being very, I was trying to be very time efficient. I didn't want to go down any, you know, rabbit trails by calling on someone I wasn't sure was going to give me the right answer. It's interesting Because, like, two things. Um, You know, first, you know, we were recently in Shanghai, and we observed math instruction at both the high school level and at the fifth grade level, sat in on classes where they do a thing called research group or lesson study, which means Mm. that a teacher is teaching. In this case, like at the fifth grade classroom, this was a lesson that the whole math department had created together. The teacher, one teacher was delivering the lesson. All the other teachers were there to observe both how did the lesson go over, what was the reaction from students, and then immediately afterward, the group convenes to talk about how it went, what were the strengths, where did they see areas of opportunity, etc. But in this scenario, and in the 10th grade classroom as well, what we observed is there is no right answer. Right. That the students possessed the ability... To solve, you know, either the set of equations or the problem using whatever methodology they were most comfortable with. And the teacher would show different ways of getting to the, to the same answer. Mm-hmm. And when a student made a mistake, instead of saying, well, I really just want to focus on what the right answer is, the teacher would actually, without showing the name of the student she Mm -hmm. would walk through while they were working in groups in pairs the students Uh to solve a problem she'd see that someone had made a mistake and she'd actually take their paper and put it up for others to see because it was probably a common mistake and there were probably others who made it and the interesting thing was there's no shame in that because it's part of the learning process right right learning failure and making mistakes are part of the learning process. Right. And the belief that um, I think that sometimes that is that fixed mindset mentality yes. that if I don't have the right answer, I don't want to speak up. Right. And that's a, a pretty big shift. It's a huge shift. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for teachers too, it's a shift because you don't want to to embarrass anybody that's by right. saying like, this is the wrong way to do it. You know, so there's this fine balance of we have to talk about why this is wrong and it's okay yeah because 
if you were here yes. and you already knew everything, my job is done. Right. Like, then what's to teach if you know it all? Uh, then I need to move on to a new content or a new subject, right? Um, but that can feel uncomfortable for both the student and the teacher. Well, I think part of it is cultural, right? So, you know, without harping too much on the Asian countries, because mm-hmm. I don't want to say that they're perfect because that would be far from the <laughs> truth. But, um, you know, I do think that there's in a lot of the research about growth versus fixed mindset, there's a pretty clear demonstration that U.S. kids, and you see this particularly when kids get to college, right? Mm -hmm. When the things that matter most and whether or not a child completes college or persists through have to do less with their SAT scores and more with grit, resilience, you know, so because that might be the first time in a student's life when you get to college and you don't score well on something. You might get an F on something. Totally. And then how are you going to deal with that versus I do think culturally in other places, there's less um, of a stigma placed yeah. on on failure. Mm-hmm. There's no shame in, in that. It's just right. part of the process. And sometimes, you know, the harder you're working, the more you're failing is exactly. almost the mantra. Yes, yeah. yeah. I remember that I went to a lecture, this was years ago at Trinity, and I heard, heard an author, um, Paul Tuff, and he was talking through the concepts that he had written in a book called How Children Succeed. Mm-hmm. And I was blown away just in how logical everything was. Like, yeah. That just makes sense that if you develop this, the opinion that you just aren't good at whatever it is, yes. academic or any other thing in your life, then you are going to fulfill that prophecy. Like you aren't, you are just not going yeah. to be good at that. But if you can reframe your thinking and think, I'm not good at that yet, and I'm not good at it yet because I haven't invested the time it takes and maybe to, I don't for want trial to. and error. Maybe or I don't want to be good at that thing. Yeah, exactly. Like, I am 100% okay with not. I'm, see, me personally, I'm good with not being good at mowing the lawn. Exactly. Good I am I don't want to mow that. the lawn. I don't either. I'm not. I'm okay with not being good at playing basketball. I'm okay. It's like, like a lot of things, things on that be, list. I don't want to do that. I don't like that. Um, so, yeah. That, that you recognize there's a reason that I'm not good at that and there's a way to change it if I want to. If I want to, I invest the time in it. Well, I think, you know, that's Carol Dweck's work, yes. right? All hundred, mi- mindset. So, and yes. I think for me, as I believe mindset is actually a book that all parents I should read. I agree Because a lot of that, you know, if you think about, she talks very clearly about the praise we offer our children when they come home from school. Yes. And instead of saying... You are so smart. You are so smart. Yes. Instead, praising the amount of effort right. that the child put into studying for a particular test or yes. the work they put into a specific project. Yes. So and it was I can very tell you worked very hard on that. Yes. Yes. Those are... So reading Paul Tuff's book actually pointed me right in the direction of Carol Dweck because he actually cites a lot of her research. So then I read Mindset and Mm -hmm. I was just, again, thinking this is a game changer concept for me personally because there were plenty of times, number one, that I was told I was smart. You are so smart. You're so smart. You have a good level head. Um, you know, those, and so that was ingrained in my self-talk. And when I, when I came up against something that actually was hard for me, that was a hard thing. Like that was, maybe I'm not that smart. Maybe I'm not that smart. Like this is, I've reached my maximum potential. All these people have been lying to me. (laughs) I'm, and, and it also, um, when I was reading those books, I had just made the transition out of the classroom or out of actually instructional coaching to becoming a school leader. And so it also helped me have those conversations with teachers when it came to evaluating um, teacher work because I felt so often that teachers were almost like their feelings were hurt if I gave them something I thought could improve their practice. And I started having the conversation more around, look, how depressing would it be if you came to this evaluative meeting and I told you, congratulations, you are as good as you will ever be. You've done it. You're as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. You have no reason or hope to get any better at anything ever. 
that is not what you want to hear either. <laughs> no, but I, again, if you go back to the example of lesson study or research group, one of the, the things that that does is it creates a real sense of community. Is what I hear from teachers all the time and even principals is it can be a very lonely Absolutely. existence. You know, sort of feel like you're alone behind the door of your classroom or mm-hmm. the door of your campus. Uh, and I think that by working together on the development of lessons, of analyzing those lessons together, and offering each other constructive feedback on a regular basis, it creates a much more collegial atmosphere, yes. which I think could be very healthy. The challenge is time. Yes. Because that American huge... teachers spend more time than almost any other place doing direct instruction Mm -hmm. instead of time that could be devoted to planning, learning, working together. And honing their practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So talk to us, how many places have you been? Well, last year we went to Singapore, Canada, uh, Finland, Sweden, Germany, Shanghai, and Japan. Gosh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry, Kate. Well, what a, I was a little tired. I'm not going to lie. Way, <laughs> what an awful way to spend your time. It was so fascinating. How, how did you decide where you were going to go? Well, a lot of those places are, are deemed the highest performing education systems in the world. Mm-hmm. And usually that's measured by the PISA exam, right? Mm-hmm. The Program for International Student Assessment, which is administered by the OECD. Now... There are questions about the validity of PISA, just like there are about (laughs) any standardized test. But it's administered to 15-year-olds. It's a random sample from a country. There's no way to study for the PISA. It's a constructive exam. There's no way to, like, test prep or cram to do well on the PISA exam. And for the last 20 years or so, uh, well, I guess um, since its first administration, uh, the U.S. has been steadily declining. Hmm. So we're now at 35th. Um, wow. In science of developed countries, 24th in reading where we do slightly better. Um, but it's it's concerning. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think the, you know, with everyone talks about we now live in a global society mm-hmm. and the flat world and all of that. And I, you know, a lot of that is true. And our, and our yeah. kids will not be just competing against other kids from the U.S. for top jobs. They're going to right. be competing against kids from China and from India and mm-hmm. other places. And, um, you know, I think most of those countries, the Asian countries certainly are considered very high performing. Singapore's number one in the world currently on everything in 2015, the last administration mm-hmm. of PISA. Um, How often is it administered? Every three years. Okay. So, so it was done year. again in 2018, oh, it, and the results mm-hmm. haven't come out. I will say where the U.S. has made good progress um, compared to other countries is, in, and this is the thing the U.S. has always been unique about, is we educate all kids. Right. So, you know, a lot of these systems, particularly not China. Everybody. No. There's right. roughly 200 million children in rural China uh-huh. who may or may not ever have access to school. So what what's preventing the access in those cases? Um, I mean... Is it cost? Is it... No, uh, it's uh, sometimes lack of facilities, but a lot of it is lack of qualified teachers to teach in those areas, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about it, Shanghai is a city of 28 million people. Wow. So it's roughly the size of Texas. Right. China, as a country, is four times the size of the United States. So it's hard for us to sort of fathom the sheer size of this. And and in my opinion, I think that, you know, they really haven't had a true universal education system. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's only been in existence for around 20 years. Wow. Because prior to that, you know, you're dealing with, you know, a country that just didn't choose to educate all kids so in that in that case going back to kind of it being a cultural mindset yes those who are educated i would assume are actually very highly esteemed like you oh and teachers you know what i'm exactly like yeah this is your job and it is just a select piece of the demographic then it's almost like you've made it 
Like well, you got in. It's interesting because people always ask me, do they pay their teachers more? Mm-hmm. And universally, the answer is usually no, especially when it comes to starting pay. The U.S. is very competitive when it comes to starting pay for teachers. Where we are not competitive is in the ability for compensation growth, yeah. right? If you think about teaching as a, as a professional field, like any other professional field, well, there would be you know, lots right. of ways to, to, to your point, once you got your board certification, yes. you know, then that would mean you move on to the next level. So right. both in Shanghai and Singapore, there's roughly six levels mm-hmm. of teaching. Wow. And you move up, you know, both through study, through research that you publish yourself, but also through the way you mentor and interact mm-hmm. with peers and colleagues, your willingness to take on other leadership responsibilities on the campus, all of those sorts of things play into it. But the big idea is that a master teacher at the highest level actually earns as much as a principal. Wow. Which takes away the incentive for a great teacher to leave to, the classroom, yeah. uh-huh. to become an administrator when they may not actually want to be an administrator. Well, the responsibilities are completely different. Well, so, and, the, yeah. and the strengths are it's, different, right? Yes. So like in Singapore, one of the reasons we've studied Singapore is because they have a very intentional approach to talent. So in your first three years of teaching, they would sort of assess, you know, let's take a look at Jen and let's see where her, her big strengths are. And if they're going to assess, you know, what she's just really great at instruction, connecting with kids, mm-hmm. we would encourage her to stay on the path to stay in the classroom. Or we see her as someone with tremendous leadership potential. Then they might put you on the administrative path. Or you know what she's really great at is developing lessons that others can deliver and teaching them how to do it well. Then we're going to put her on a path to actually go work at the ministry. Hmm. And once you're on that path, you can move, but you also move up through the right. system. And you're constantly being growing, being promoted, you know, working on yourself, helping others on your campus. And it's a really, you know, tight system. I, I will say when we took our superintendents to Singapore, mm-hmm. you know, which How is many went? literally halfway around the world. It takes 26 hours oh to get there. <laughs> Like literally, wow! It's beautiful, but also it's real far. Ah, uh, yeah. And um, we took there were seven districts, so it was uh, the superintendent and one other people, one other, one person, other person, usually head of curriculum instruction mm-hmm. from the district. And I think you know, yes, they were blown away by a lot of different things sure. about the country, of course, you know, because it's so different yes. than the U.S. And everybody says, well, why would you take him to Singapore? That's essentially a dictatorship. <laughs> Okay, but they do have this really great approach to talent within the education system. But what the superintendents were shocked by was two things. Number one, the principal, a principal has no role in the observation of teachers. Who does the observing? The other teachers. Wow. And so they're, and that observation, is it evaluative? Yeah. Interesting. So principals don't do that. Because that if you be think amazing. about, but just span of control, yes. like let's take even a small, small school where there's mm-hmm. 50 teachers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like everything about organizational design tells you that no one person could ever in a million years deliver effective never. feedback and growth no. planning to 50 you people. You can't know somebody that well. No. You can't. It's, it's impossible. Not possible. So they have, like I said, the master teacher leaders, which are, you know, teachers who've proven themselves to be adept, very skilled in their profession. Mm-hmm. They spend less time doing direct instruction. They still teach, but they spend a lot of their time coaching and teaching other mm-hmm. teachers and doing observation. And it is evaluative. So could you ever see our system even thinking that way like even just sitting down and when you came back when you came home or even while you were in travel right you had what did you say 20 26 hours hours to to think about about that and watch a lot of movies (laughs) (laughs) what did the conversation coming home sound like like what what i think people get overwhelmed like i said thinking well you know, well, we're like, oh, my mind is blown. How am I going to do that all mm-hmm. in, you know. It's this... like you're I'm so thirsty for information, yeah. but you just went and now stood I'm in front drowning. of the fire hydrant yes. instead of the so water I think fountain. It's, it's baby steps, mm-hmm. right? So it's things like just take a step in re-envisioning teacher leadership within mm-hmm. your district. What is the role of teacher leadership? 
um, how are those people selected? Totally, because I when I hear teacher leader, what comes to my mind first is like, will you sponsor student council? Will yeah. you will you be the National Junior Honor Society sponsor? Are you class? You know, will you sponsor the sophomore class? Sure. Will you run the grade level meeting? Will you be in charge of the courtesy committee? Like, I feel like that's <laughs> been. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just. No, maybe I think that's, that's just right. been my experience, but. That's what comes to my mind when I immediately think teacher leader. I don't immediately, when you say teacher leader, I don't immediately think, oh, this that is a person who is skilled in the trade of teaching and in the craft. And so they are able and willing to go and watch other people and give them feedback. Yes. That's not, that's not my immediate thought when I hear teacher leader. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very common. But what if, I think there are some districts around the country that have started to reimagine that. Denver is one that people always talk about, which has done a mm-hmm. lot of work on this front. You know, but I think there's huge opportunity there um, to, you know, give teachers that opportunity to actually lead others. And talk about elevating the profession. Yeah, I mean, for sure. That, I will say the national board process really helped me reframe the way I thought about the work I was doing because it's such a collaborative process and it's so reflective and they ask hard questions and so you do and I will tell you the first time I put I applied for national board certification I applied as a generalist and I didn't do a pre-candidacy year Mm -hmm. I just went for it (laughs) And I failed miserably. I And I really realized, like, you know what? I'm not a generalist. I'm a reading person. Yeah. That is my strength. I am a literacy person. And I will tell you that maybe in other times in my life, had I failed at something, I would have said, I guess I'm just not... I'm just not going to do it. I mean, I'm not, it's not for me. I'm not good at it. Yeah. But having gone through that whole year of work, I knew then more about my teaching than I had at the outset. And I thought, I just picked the wrong candidacy. I need to go back and do this again. And this time I'm going to do literacy, K to 12 literacy certification. And that one I passed with flying colors. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought of myself as a literacy specialist, but through that process of talking it out and watching myself teach and and really thinking through like where are my strengths then I discovered this is my not only is it a strength it's actually my passion mm-hmm. this is really what I like to teach and I'm good at this part of teaching but I wouldn't have known that necessarily had I not gone through that whole collaborative reflective piece so I feel like those are the conversations that I've always said that's been the best professional development that I've ever sure ever had and it was also the hardest it was the most rigorous it was hard on me because watching yourself like that is just <laughs> that is a hard thing to it's do. great demonstration of growth mindset on your part though and but it was encouraged yeah like, good um, my colleagues that were helping me they were they really encouraged me to Go back and rethink. Go back and challenge yourself. Go back and think about what what does all this mean? Like what does it mean that you didn't pass this section? What does that mean? Yeah. Because it doesn't mean you're not smart or not a good teacher. It just means that you don't necessarily know all the standards for teaching art in 11th grade. (laughs) Yeah. And that's okay. Yes. Because you don't want to teach art in 11th grade. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. That seems like a tangent, but. No, when I think, um, you know, the second thing that our folks really observed in in Singapore in particular, but we've seen it in other places too, is the revere for the teaching profession. Yes. And a lot of them, because teachers are referred to as nation builders in Singapore. And and the teaching profession is on par with being a doctor or a lawyer Mm -hmm. and very selective very difficult to get in to the College of Education. You know, you have to do very well yeah. in school and on your exams. So the you're just a teacher mindset doesn't ring true <laughs> over there. I will tell you, um, <laughs> no. And in fact, the federal government um, invests in, there's, I mean, there's television ads about the mm-hmm. importance of teaching. There's bus 
display banners and even at the stations and so forth there's posters about the importance of teaching it's everywhere it's very prevalent I love the concept of being a nation builder because I think that is what we do we we're raising the next generation of our country well and I you know it's interesting that the U.S. which is a democracy doesn't currently maybe see it that way Mm -hmm. because the very heart of a democracy depends on an educated citizenry. Absolutely. I've always said, you know, having a free education system that's accessible to everyone Mm -hmm. is the single most democratic thing that a country could do. I believe that. Like, that is democracy. Because when you have a literate populace that can engage in hard thinking and problem solving, you're creating a future that's sustainable. When you don't have a populace that's literate or able to do critical thinking, then you're going to have to import those things from somewhere else. So your your own future isn't necessarily sustainable in that setup. So we are doing such great work in public education that I can hardly stand it. I get so excited about it. I'm like, this is such a we're in such a blessed place and it's time for us to really stop and think about what could we do to continue what was begun long ago and make sure that we're doing justice by all of the children that we're we're raising up yeah i mean i think that you know and a lot of folks will tell me well kate you know all those countries are very uh, homogeneous So, of course, they're going to perform better than the U.S., Mm -hmm. you know, because we're a very diverse country. I will say the one example I would point to that we've spent quite a bit of time in is Canada. You know, so if you spend time in Toronto, Mm -hmm. which is roughly a city the size of and with the diversity of Houston, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a big city. um, And, you know, I've been to an elementary school in Toronto that served 2,200 kids, which is a big elementary school that had a pre-k campus and an elementary campus Mm -hmm. on the same area but two different buildings two principals and start the some some of the pre-kers can start as early as three you Mm -hmm. know all and it's universal all children have access to pre-k and on the elementary campus there were almost 70 different languages spoken 70 wow and in two to three years, they were able to close any language gap that might exist. And a lot of these families are refugee families, mm-hmm. you know, be that, you know, whatever your politics are. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks from Syria, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. et cetera, who've arrived in Canada and they're sending their kids to school there and they're doing a phenomenal job. A lot of people think that Canada is going to be the next education superpower. And to say that it can't be done with a very heterogeneous population right. is simply not true. What I will say is it has to be done with intentionality right. and it takes leadership from the top. So talk to us about Holdsworth That's, and what you're doing with leadership. Yeah, so... Um, the Holsworth Center is named after Charles Butt's mother, Mary Elizabeth Holsworth Butt, and it is a brand new leadership institute that works with school districts for over five years to really reinvent their whole approach to talent management, to leadership development mm-hmm. within the system, to make sure that there's a, a bench of ready and able principals who are ready to step into the role when a campus position opens. So it's sort of shifting from a reactive approach where mm-hmm. job opens, you post it, you see who applies, to a very proactive approach of developing people with, with great intention. And I will say across all of these systems, systems that's what we see is a level of intentionality right in in my view i think some of our approach to education reform in the last has been very scattershot mm-hmm. it's it's not focused let's just see what happens it's let's it's try like, this let's and throw see. some spaghetti right. at the yeah. wall and, and see, see what sticks yeah and i would argue that you know kids lives are a lot to mess around with yeah. <laughs> experimentally. So, um, you know, but when I say from the top, you know, in Canada, that came with a political shift and, a, and an emphasis right. at the top of the country that says, we've got to focus on this. 
because our future depends on it. The same of, you know, Lee Kuan Yew. And you could criticize him all day long for some of his policies. Sure. I will. I do want to correct one thing, though, okay. while I'm on this Let's podcast, which is you can chew gum in Singapore. <laughs> you can't buy gum in Singapore. They don't sell it. But you, you can go across the border to Malaysia and buy, and buy gum. it. But you can bring it into the country. <laughs> And you can chew it because I chewed it in multiple places. And, no and you didn't get in trouble. I never got arrested you never, or beaten you. or any of those things. And so that is, and I will tell you the reason that chewing gum was banned in the country. And this to, this to me speaks to intentional policy. Okay. Okay. And it's a very small country. I mean, it's Tainancy. So you can do these things and you can correct society's ills in this Tainancy little, right. you know, land. Uh but the, they had just invested millions of dollars in this beautiful subway. They have a beautiful subway system because it's hot in Singapore. Uh-huh. But you could spend days without ever going outside, yeah. underground, going between shopping mall to shopping mall, and all air conditioned and never step outside. Uh, but teenagers, you see, teenagers are the same in any country. Of course They're they the are. They're the same. They were putting their gum on this brand new beautiful oh, subway. Come on, guys. And so Lee Kuan Yew said, that's it. That's it. You ruined it for everyone. No more gum. No more Chick-fil-A for you. You ruined it for so, everyone. I mean, like, <laughs> to us, that seems real crazy. But therefore, there's not a lot of chewing gum on their beautiful right. subway. That's hilarious. So I just wanted to clear that up for okay. everyone because it's well, now actually we know. not true. You, yeah. can, you can chew it, you can't. but you're not going to buy it Now it is true, it you cannot bring Take your own gum. drugs into the country because if That's you get caught, news. they will kill you. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty That's pretty strict. It is pretty strict. That's pretty strict. But, but it works for them. Well, and it also it's, means they don't have a drug problem. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's... Yeah. So all of those things. But I'm about, you know, I'm about sort of learning. Like, I take all these experiences and say, what what can be learned Right, because I was just going to say, like, you're not going to take that and say, this is what we should do in the United States, right? But you can look at the system and say, do you understand how systematic change happens? Look at what is being done systemically. And how how can we look at our system and say... Let's implement some systematic change, right? And let's start it. You are, Holdsworth is starting with the leaders. Yeah, superintendents superintendents and their teams. Principals and their teams. So what can classroom teachers do right now today? Well, I think the number one thing that I, I mean, you said it. You know, if you haven't read Mindset, read it. You have to read mindset. Because as educators, we have to be learners. Yes. And that, and read, read Paul Tuff's book too. The How Children Succeed. I'm going to go get it. It is just (laughs) so good. And he talks about all the things you talked about. How minus adversity, those skills like grit and creativity, they're very hard to, to build. So we should be praising times of adversity. They are hard. And we all experience hard things in life. Mm-hmm. But it's the hard things in life that grow you as a person, that give you Absolutely. a skill set that absent that adversity, you wouldn't have. Which means that when you did encounter something hard, it's going to feel like you can't recover. But the truth is you can. You can recover. When I would say to that end, you know, if everyone, if every teacher, you know, read the book thought about it in their own practice and then invited a teacher on their another teacher on their campus who they respect and admire because there has to be at least one to come into your classroom just invite them to watch you and to give you some feedback yeah I love that. Because feedback it's, is a gift. It really, really is. <laughs> That's a the Montred Holsworth. <laughs> feedback is a gift because it helps you grow, learn, and improve. Yes, it does. And I think my advice to teachers would be to change number one, to, to monitor the story you tell about yourself and your profession, right? Just monitor it. Just listen. Listen for the story we're telling. Are we feeding into myths? Are we elevating our profession? Right. And then secondly, to lean on your leaders and leadership it's not about a title sometimes your leaders are your colleagues but lean on your leaders 
and encourage them, encourage the leadership in whatever capacity they are they are um, working in, right? So I, I always was so inspired when a teacher would come to me and say, you really helped me get better. Yeah. The same way you were, in, teachers are inspired when their kids come. You know, years later, when you get that note from a former fifth grader that says, you said this thing one time and it changed everything about the next five years of school for me. Principals wanted same thing. Yes. They want to hear from teachers that sound things that sound like, you know that day when we had that hard conversation and I really felt like it was not true what you said about my practice, but it did change everything about what it was that I was doing and I'm I became a better teacher because of it. Like that's my encouragement for teachers. Go go appreciate your leader. Um mm-hmm. love on him a little because it's it's very much it's like teaching. Job. Principling yeah. is very much like teaching. And principals are all teachers. Uh, they want what you want from your students. They want that feedback. And feedback is a gift. And if you, te- and if you have feedback, go ahead and give it to them. Because they're learners too. Absolutely. Like there were plenty of times teachers came and told me, I don't like the way you did that. And it made me stop and think, you know what? You're right. I should have done that differently. So that that's our advice for you today. Um Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I I know you told me this off off of the air, but I know you've never done a podcast before. <laughs> and that just makes me so excited <laughs> that we get to be the first time that you are a guest on a podcast. Thank you. Um, so I'm very much appreciative. I know that your schedule is a wild and crazy schedule and that you have lots of big things. I was not playing, you guys. This is a big deal. And so I am just really appreciative so thank, thank you. you for the work you're doing thank you i appreciate it very much and hopefully we'll talk again soon yes yes anytime That'd be great anytime so um we love the work that you're doing at the holdsworth center and i think that i know about it because i follow you on instagram mm-hmm. and the holdsworth center and so i see all of the work and i hear it in conversations yes. that i have but for anybody who doesn't know where to find you guys you want to give them some pointers on sure. how? So it's real easy. It's holdsworthcenter.org. And that's exactly like it sounds. Yes. It's spelled Holdsworth. And uh, uh, currently working with seven districts from around the state, two years into the partnerships with all of those districts. And they're from all over. And uh, about to announce the next six who've been selected. So do leaders apply to be selected? Districts apply. Districts apply. Yeah, because the idea is that the partnership is with the entire district. Got it. And the transformation takes time. So it does start at the top of the organization, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. with the superintendent and their team. And then that's a, a program called the District Leadership Program and then works down to the campus leadership program the clp which is a principal on their team and the teaming part is really important because again it sort of fights against this notion that it's about the hero leader right that it's about one hero teacher Mm -hmm. or one hero leader no high performing schools it's about teams and teams of people working together to do what's in the best interest of students Awesome. So we will look for you on your website, and you do have social media. Yes, you everything. Are on uh, name it. Instagram, Twitter, Instagram, Twitter, all of them. YouTube. She's all of on it. the whole internet, you guys. The internets. The internets. Go and find the Holdsworth Center. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miseducation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.